All right, good morning, good to see you. I uh, hope you'll be praying for Pastor Kevin and the team of people that are with him. They're headed over to Thailand to visit our orphanages there. Right now, they should be between Tokyo and Bangkok, and so they're in the air somewhere, hopefully. <laughs> um, but they're going to visit our orphanages and spend some time with the kids there, and so I'll just be praying for them in the next week. Hey, speaking of kids, our Grace Kids... It's a great ministry. If your kids are not regularly there, I want to encourage you to get them there. They learn a lot. They get to experience a lot. So get them there. And if you're looking for a place to serve, Grace Kids will be a great place to plug in. So look into that. We appreciate it. Every once in a while, our Grace Kids ministry will do something. One of the teachers, I don't know how they get it organized to do it, but they'll have the kids make up cards for the pastors. And... Uh, they did that this past weekend, and so last Sunday I was given some cards that the kids had made, and they're always nice, you know, kids draw little pictures on them and write little messages to us on them, so it's always pretty encouraging. But I but, uh, got one last week that uh, there was no name on, so I'm not sure whose child this was, um, but it, it, was, it cracked me up. I, I can't hardly look at it and read it without laughing, so I'm going to try to... Anyway, the front of the card just says, awesome. So I was feeling pretty good about that. And then I open it up, and uh, there's a picture of Mario. So I'm assuming this is a little boy, probably. But then he wrote these words. This is a second or third grader, okay? Second or third grader. This is his message to me. He says... <laughs> He says, I rebuke your worries. <laughs> I don't know where a second grader gets that. But, uh, but I appreciate it because I had no worries all week long. <laughs> uh, hey. Has nothing to do with the message. <laughs> As Joel mentioned, we're in the middle of a series in the Gospel of John, and we've made it to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, there's a change because we've been noticing and looking at all these different encounters Jesus had with different people. There was Nicodemus, and then the woman at the well, and then there's the lame man. And last week, we looked at the man born blind. And, and in chapter 10, we, we move away from encounters. It's, it's a Jesus teaching. It's really teaching that flows out of what happened in chapter 9. So I want to go back and pick up a couple of verses there at the end of chapter 9. Starting verse 40, it says this. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard, heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, <clears throat> If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. So these guys, they're like, we've, we've got it all together. Jesus pointed out, if you think you've got it all together, your sin's still there. You haven't come to a point of realizing your sin. You haven't turned from it. And that's where they're at. And then Jesus goes on to teach, chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. 
To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus starts talking about sheep and a shepherd and the people. They, they understand about sheep. I mean, that's part of their culture. They know what's going on. They understand that, hey, typically what happened a lot of times is shepherds would bring their flocks in at night. They would come to, into the village they're, they're, or the city, and they would, their sheep would all go in one communal pen. It was the village pen. And so they'd all be in there for the night. There'd be a guy there who's the doorkeeper. He would watch their sheep for the night. Shepherds would go get their rest. In the morning, they'd come back to that communal pen, and the shepherd, each shepherd, would, he would call out to his sheep. And his sheep, only his sheep, would respond to him. They knew his voice, and they would come to him, and he'd take them out for the day to graze. That would happen a lot of times. Other times, sheep would be, they'd be too far out, maybe, and they'd stay out in the, out in the, the fields grazing, and so uh, they would not take them in to these communal pens, but they'd have smaller uh, areas that they had built for the sheep to come in, a small pen out in the middle of nowhere, and the sheep would come in for the night there alone. There's an author by the name of George Adam Smith who, who wrote about this. He was out with some shepherds just trying to get more information. So they take him to one of these small enclosures, and he's looking at it, and he realizes there's an opening there, but there's no door. And so he's asking the question of the shepherd, where's the door? And the shepherd says, I'm the door. I'm the door, and I lay down here in the opening, and at night, the sheep can't get out without going over me. Wolves can't get in without going over me. I'm the door. So the people listening, they, they know all of this. But what they're not getting is why is Jesus talking about it? They aren't getting the point he's making. So Jesus explains in verse 7, so Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus explains, I'm the door. You know, in John's gospel, there's these I am statements, right? We, we, we looked at one a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Kevin talked about when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, right? A clear claim to his deity. And when we, what we see with all these statements, these I am statements, is a, a, a connection to some aspect of him being God. But Jesus makes his claim, he uses the personal name of God, I am, and, and we know it was an obvious claim to being deity, and the Jewish leaders there knew it as well, and so they picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to kill him. 
There are other I am statements, though. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And then when they came to Gethsemane to arrest him that night, they, they came and they said, hey, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I am. And there was that, this weird reaction. We're told they, they drew back and fell to the ground. His surrender to them, his arrest, obviously, was he was willing to do. It was his option. Because with just two words, he completely dominates them. And here we have two more I am statements right here in John 10. I am the door, which he says twice, and I am the good shepherd, which he also says twice. Think about it. I am the door. He says, anyone who came before me or anyone who tries to come in some other way, they're thieves and robbers. He's talking directly about those Pharisees who are standing there, thieves and robbers. But the sheep, those who belong here, they get to come in and go out through the door, through the door, one door, the only door. And right here you get a difference between the way unbelievers and, and believers respond. You know, non-believers are like, what are you talking about the door? What do you mean? There's got to be other doors, right? There, there is, it can't be there's just one. That's not right. That's not fair. There has to be other doors. But for a believer, our response is completely opposite to that. For believers, we're like, I'm so grateful there's a door at all. I'm so thankful because I don't deserve a door. I don't deserve to be a part of what he's doing. I, he didn't have to let me in, but he did. So thankful that he's the door. So thankful that he's the door because it provides, he is going to provide safety for me and he's going to provide provision for me. So, so glad for that one door. Totally different perspectives. And going in, Jesus talks about going in and out of the door because we're his, because we're part of his flock. And when he says that, he's not talking about going in and out of salvation. He's talking about us going in and out because he's given us freedom. He's given us life. And he gives us what he says here, life abundantly. Abundant life. I don't know what goes comes to your mind when you hear the term abundant life, but for a lot of people, they start thinking about circumstances. They start thinking about how things are going for them. And if things are going good, that's abundant. If it's not so good, it's not so abundant. But that's not the case at all. Real abundant life isn't about circumstances. You want some proof of that? Think about the lame guy a few weeks ago. Lame guy, his circumstances changed, right? He hadn't been able to walk. Now he gets to walk. Circumstances have improved. But that's a guy who didn't get to, still, doesn't, we don't believe, got to experience abundant life. Why? Because what we see is he turned on Jesus, right? 
Circumstances got better, but he's not experiencing abundant life. The blind guy, on the other hand, last week, his circumstances changed for better. And we think he did get to experience an abundant life. And why is that? Not because his circumstances changed. He got to experience abundant life because we're told he believed. See, that's the key. It's not about circumstances. It's not about, abundant life's not about how much money you have in your bank account. It's not about how, if life's going good for you or not. Abundant life, abundant life is about a peace in your soul. Peace in your soul. It's sort of hard to describe unless you're a Christian and you, and you experience it. You know, it's a little bit like, you know, when you go on vacation and you take, you're somewhere and you see something incredible and so you're snapping pictures of it. And then you come home and you look at your pictures and it's always a little disappointing. You know, they just don't catch the full perspective of what you experienced when you were looking at that site in person. Our words never seem to catch the full experience of what it is to have peace in our soul. What the world is so desperately searching for. You know, we talk about our culture, we look at it and we see it's just sort of spiraling down and out of control. What, what are people doing? You look at it and it makes no sense. But if you listen to them, what they're doing is they're looking for peace in their soul. A contentment. A contentment that only God can provide. A satisfaction that nothing else will bring. That's abundant life. Reminds me of David's well-known words from the 23rd Psalm. You've heard it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord's my shepherd. I shall not, I don't have to, I don't have to go searching for something else. Don't have to search for something to bring meaning to my life. I don't have to search for something to bring peace to my soul. He brings everything I need. I shall not want. When things go good, I don't want. You know, he, when he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leaves me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. When things are good, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And when things are bad, when my circumstances aren't working out, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Good circumstances, bad, it doesn't matter. It's not about, abundant life is not about the circumstances. Abundant life is about knowing God and having peace in your soul. He, David said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You feel like that? Knowing God 
good or bad circumstances of life, my cup overflows. I, he's given me more inwardly than I can possibly handle. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Not just the good ones, all the days. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We get to experience all of that because he's the door and we've gone through him. He's not only the door, but he also says, I'm the good shepherd. And, and what is it that, that makes him the good shepherd? Well, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For the sheep. The Greek word there, for, is the word huper. It means in place of. So he didn't just do it for us and there's no connection. He died in our place. He took our place. The death he gave, sometimes you hear it referred to as the as a substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary, why? Because he was our substitute. He died the death that we all deserved in our place. He's not like some guy who's paid to take care of the sheep and takes off with the first sign of trouble. No, that guy's got no real ownership in it. He's got no real commitment, but with Jesus, it's totally different. And as he looks over at the Pharisees here, we read in verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That paid guy, he's going to run. He's not the good shepherd. The good shepherd's on this different level. He lays down his life. We're talking about full commitment. And, and that good shepherd, he says, I know my own and my own know me. It's very personal. When David said, the Lord is my shepherd, it's very personal. He knows me. You ever meet somebody famous? You ever had an opportunity to do that? I've met one or two sort of semi-famous people in my life. If you ever had, you probably were pretty excited about it, and so you went and told people, oh, I met so-and-so. I met this person. Can you believe it? That famous person they probably didn't go and tell all their friends. <laughs> you know, those semi-famous guys that I met, none of them went and said, I met Tim Weisart today. <laughs> didn't happen. They're not, they weren't excited to meet me. Jesus, our good shepherd, you know, we talk a lot about us knowing him. But he knows us. You know how good that is? He knows us. He's, we love to know him. 
He loves to know us. He, he's our good shepherd. It's good news. You want even better news? Look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father knows me, because I lay down my life so that I may take again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So he, so he mentions here, he mentions these other sheep. You know who the other sheep are? It's us. It's us. See, up until now, the point has been primarily all about the Jewish people. And in their culture, the, the other people, the Gentiles, we had been separated out. But Jesus opened the door and he invited us in. And if we're believers, somewhere, sometime in our life, we heard him. We heard our good shepherd calling us and how did he do that? He did that through his, his good news, the, the gospel. He called us, and we came to his call because we know his voice. He's our good shepherd who willingly laid down his life in our place. All that Jesus is saying here didn't sit well with some people. So in verse 19, there's, a, there's an argument that starts. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon, is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So they're arguing. Some, he's a, he has a demon, he's insane. They keep pulling that out, don't they? Whatever argument they can come up with, it's, it's one of those two usually. He's demonically controlled or he's insane. Others look at the, say, hey, look at the results. The man born blind, he can see. That's not happening because of a demon. So just like today, when people bring up the name of Jesus... There's division. Even though Jesus is the door and the good shepherd, people are divided. And some people, they're just not interested. They think it's crazy to follow Jesus. They have no desire to follow him. And then there's those who are his sheep who wouldn't go any other way. There are some who are determined to go their own way, and it's obvious as we read on. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So we're now at the Feast of Dedication. Several months after what happened with the man born blind. The Feast of Dedication is what we know that we hear the, the, the holiday Hanukkah. This is it. Hanukkah is not one of the Old Testament festivals. You know, we were just talking about one the other week, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. There was a, a number of feasts, of festivals, of celebrations that were held that, had, that were prescribed in the Old Testament. This is not one of those. This is a celebration of an event that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, at, 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 during that time, part of that time, the Syrians were ruling over Israel. And there was a guy named Antiochus IV who was king of Syria who was ruling over the Israel people. He was an evil guy. Um, he was a guy who desecrated the temple. He, he put a statue of Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed a pig in the temple. Just whatever he could, he was evil. He was full of himself. He gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. I am God revealed. God manifest. The Jewish people weren't buying it, so they gave him another name. Antiochus Epimenes, which just means crazy Antiochus. And he was. He was insane. He wanted to stamp out the Jewish people, and he killed many of them. He enslaved many of them. He forbid observing the Sabbath. He forbid circumcision. In fact, one time he, he uh, arrested two moms who had had their sons circumcised. He punished them by having their babies killed in front of them and hanging their lifeless bodies around those mothers' necks. Evil man. That kind of persecution went on for a number of years until the Jewish people had finally had all they could take and they rebelled and they defeated the Syrians. And Hanukkah is a celebration of that victory. And so Jesus is there at that celebration in Jerusalem celebrating with the people their victory over the Syrians. It's winter, which we no, it's their, their, that's their rainy season. Maybe that's why he's walking in the portico of Solomon because it had a roof over it. It's where people tended to go to gather and Jesus is there and an angry group of people surround him. And they tell him. They make their demand. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Oh, what a joke. I mean, he had told them plainly enough not so long ago that they had picked up stones to try to kill him. 
Why are they demanding this again? And, and that's Jesus' response. He's like, I told you, you, you don't believe. And you're the perfect example of what I was just talking about. See, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep know my voice. I know them. They know me and they follow me. It just keeps begging this question of us. Have you heard his voice? And are you following? And then this great promise that Jesus gives. Basically, he says the same thing three different ways. He says, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. I give eternal life to them. I give. It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. I give eternal life. You know, a lot of people struggle with the idea of what's called eternal security. The idea that once you actually turn in faith to Jesus, that he keeps you. Guaranteeing your eternal destiny. But just think about the words themselves. Eternal life. If he gave us life, any life that's for some reason, for whatever reason, came to an end, it was never eternal. By definition, salvation can't be temporary. Jesus, trying to stress the point, puts it another way. They will never perish. You want to know how you can know for sure you're going to heaven? Jesus says, hey, if you've come to me, I've given you eternal life, and you'll never, never perish. It can't be that I was saved and now I'm not. Because Jesus said you'll never perish. You want more assurance on top of that? Jesus says no one's able to snatch them out of my hand. He's guarding us. There's nothing in all of creation. There's no one in all of creation that can take us from him. Want even more assurance? <laughs> Jesus says, my father, who's greater than all, he gave us to Jesus, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. I mean, we're in good hands, right? And by the way, I and the Father are one. Wow. Oh, boy. You know that's going to cause some issues, right? I and the Father are one. And they picked up stones again, verse 31. They picked up stones again to stone him. Fourth time in John that they tried to kill him. I brought this verse up, verse 30. I and the Father are one. I brought that up to one time to a Jehovah's Witness. Because they don't believe Jesus is equal with the Father. Um, they think he's inferior to the Father, that he's a created being. So I said, so what do you, John 10, 30, what do you do with that? I and the Father are one. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the guy's like, well, don't you think that just means like they're, they're, they're one in spirit? I said, oh, like a, like a team? Like they're a team, and, and they're like a football team. They're one in spirit. 
And he'd go, yeah, like that. Don't you think that's right? I go, no. <laughs> I mean, sure, they work together, but it's much more than that they're one in spirit. I and the Father are one. They're one and the same. In essence, he's not inferior in any way. And that's why, as I pointed out to that man, that's why the, the Jewish leaders respond the way they do. They know the claim that Jesus is making, which you're trying to deny as a Jehovah's Witness. But according to to the scripture, well, the claim that Jesus is making, the Jewish people get it, and they pick up stones again to stone, and they know that this is a blasphemous statement if he is not God. And according to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 24, if a person claims to be God, they are to be stoned to death. They lose it because they know what he's claiming. But Jesus is perfectly calm. Look at, look at verse 31 again. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them. Now, think about it. Think about this. If, if a group of hostile people were picking up stones to stone you, to stone me, what would you be doing? I would either be running or begging for my life, wouldn't I? Please, no, no, no. But here's Jesus. Jesus answered them. They, got, they have stones in their hand. They're angry. Jesus says, hey, I showed you many good works from the Father. From which of, of them are you stoning me? For which of them are you stoning me? Just as calm as he can be. The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, is not, has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. You don't believe my claims, but you've seen my good works. For which one of them are you going to kill me? And then he uses this argument from Psalm 82.6 where the term gods, it, little g, is used to refer to Israel's unjust judges. Psalm 82.6 says, I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. And Jesus uses a logical argument here. It's a an argument from lesser to greater. If the word God could be used to people who were no more than judges, and you guys don't have a problem with that, how much more could it be used of the one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? So he's not placing himself on a level with these other guys. He's separating himself apart from them. And if that's true, if that's his argument, then you might expect that his challenge to them would bring on continuing effort on their part to do away with him. 
And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they were seeking him again, seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. He went away beyond the Jordan, not to run away, not in fear, because he's going to head back to Jerusalem soon to offer himself for us. He went away beyond the Jordan, back to where his ministry began. And many believed on him there. You look at this chapter and what we're told. And if you're a believer in Jesus, it just makes you so thankful. So thankful for the door. So thankful for the good shepherd. So thankful for eternal life. So thankful for the guarantee of that life. The, the question is for all of us, have we, have we heard his call? Have we recognized his voice? You want life abundant? Come to Jesus. And know peace in your soul. And if you're claiming you've already come to him, then the question is, as one of his sheep, if you're his, are you following? Are you obeying? Because if there's ongoing disobedience in our life that we have not turned from, that's evidence that should make us question, have I really answered his call? If there's some area of your life that you, you've got ongoing sin that you haven't dealt with, it's time to turn from it and follow him. Because that's, that's what sheep do. They follow the shepherd. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for the goodness of our salvation, the joy that it brings to us, the peace that we have because of it, the guarantee that it is for us that we know you and that you know us. And you walk through every single day with us. Thank you for that. For those that might be or haven't taken that step, Father, in their life, I pray, God, that they would take that step today, just that they would turn to you in faith and know your forgiveness and have that relationship. And then, for Father, for those of us who say that we know you, God, I pray that we're truly following, truly obeying, God, that we're reflecting what it means 
to be yours. And Father, we pray all this in his name. Amen.